If you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, let's open that to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. And verse 5 is where we'll begin this morning. Paul is in a series of questions here, rhetorical questions that they know the answer to from his teaching. And he says in verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. A lot, a lot of stuff here to unpack, and he continues to give us a lot of stuff to unpack here in chapter 3. And so this morning, I want us to start here, and we'll get what we can get, and we'll keep on moving on in the weeks ahead. Let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful time of, of worship that we've already enjoyed this morning, this time of singing and lifting our voices and, and prayer and participating in the offering and just everything, seeing one another, um, fellowshipping with one another, everything that we've been able to enjoy, Lord, comes from your good hand, and we thank you. We pray now that as we look to your word to instruct us, to increase our knowledge of your will for our life, for us to understand doctrine because doctrine drives our life, drives what we do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would grant us understanding and, Lord, that you would uh, use me as a vessel in your hand to honor you and glorify you through the preaching of your word. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for this time together, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, you notice here that we're, Paul is starting to take us into some Old Testament examples here in chapter 3 to prove his point regarding justification. We're still looking at the doctrine of justification. Martin Luther said that he preaches justification by faith alone in Christ alone every week. That's what he said, every week because every week we forget it. Um, the, at the very core of our being, our sinful being, we want to believe that we have righteousness to offer. And so we are weekly, daily, momentarily, we're uh, sucked in to wanting and pursuing self-righteousness. And so Paul is dealing with this very thoroughly um, because justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. And so I want us to look at the promise made to Abraham, but I want to take it back a little further than Abraham um, and, and show it was not a new promise to Abraham. Um, it was a promise already given 
to Adam and Eve, as you'll see in Genesis chapter 3. And I really want us to, to uh, look at the big picture. And really the foundational question that is being weighed here is this. How, how do I inherit the promises of God? Right? How does one inherit the promises of God? And really, the, the umbrella of the promises of God is being able to be back into the presence of God, right? Reconciled presence of God. Because we know what happened in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, what happened? They got booted out, right? And an angel with a flaming sword was set uh, to, to guard that entrance. And so what we want is we want to get back into that condition of reconciled presence of God. And the way we do that is by entering into that reconciled relationship by being in the family of God. So how does someone inherit the promises of God? Because the false teachers here have a different idea than God does. And that's what Paul's saying. The false teachers here are trying to sway the Galatians to an unbiblical view of how you obtain entrance, if you will, into the family of God or how you inherit the promises of God. How does one become a member of the people of God? And I want us to see the foundational promise and answer to this question by God immediately following the fall of mankind into sin. This is what we call and theologians call the seed form of the gospel. The gospel is not original in the New Testament. I know there's some people that believe that. It's, it's not original to the New Testament. It's not original to Abraham. The gospel is as old as Genesis 3 to mankind. The gospel has been revealed in more clear ways as time progressed. And I'll speak a little bit about that uh, in a moment. But Genesis 3.15, when God has come to Adam and Eve, they wouldn't come to him. He's come to them. He sought them out like a good shepherd. And he speaks to them. And now he's addressing the serpent who is Satan. And he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what this is, is a, in seed form, this is a promise of God that he will have victory over Satan. We know in Romans 16, you come and the God of, the God of will, what, soon crush Satan, Right? Um, the ultimate victory um, and, and the revealing of that victory for all to see is coming. And that victory, we're told here in Genesis 3.15 in seed form, will come through the seed of a woman. Okay? The people of God's seed will be separated. They will be a separate people from the seed of Satan that follows Satan's way of life, which is rebellion against God. So God's people, through the promised seed, will have victory. Amen. And there will be a distinction between the people of God and those who follow the rebellious ways of Satan. That is the gospel message in seed form. And then that promise is expressed in a more pointed way in Genesis 12. In verse 1 through 3 of Genesis 12, 
God says to Abraham, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now we have that, we have that promised seed in Genesis 3, right? That promised people of God that God's going to create through the seed of a woman. And here in Genesis 12, it's being further explained as coming from Abraham. Okay? Now it's, now it's getting a little more specific, right? Genesis 3, seed of a woman. Pretty, pretty broad and general uh, stroke. But now, Genesis 12, it's going to come through Abraham. It's a little more focused looking for the one who is coming to lead God's people to victory, and what people group to look for this promised seed's coming. Now, later in Genesis 49, it, it becomes a, a little more specific. In um, Genesis 49, Jacob is speaking to his sons, and in 49.10, we're told this, and this is important, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall all shall be the obedience of the peoples. Okay? So now we're told not only through Abraham, but it's going to come through Judah, through the tribe of Judah. I, I love when you read this, um, all t and to him, right, this, this seed, this victor, this conqueror, it says in 49.10, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Here God reveals that the promised seed will come not just from the seed of the woman and not just from the seed of Abraham, but also from the tribe of Judah. Later on in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 7.16, we're told that this promised seed will come through the line of David. 2 Samuel 7, 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So now we're coming through the lineage of David. There's more revelation in the prophets of the Old Testament of how to look for the promised seed. There's the prophecy of the kill, killing of Children in mass, the virgin birth of the promised seed, the seed being from Nazareth, the flight into Egypt, and many, many more. And that's not what I'm preaching this morning, but God has continuously revealed from Genesis 3 where to look, how to find him, what to look for, who to trust in, the signs that this is the one, right? And then you get to the Gospels, and they give you the lineages, and Matthew's going, and this was done so the Scripture would be fulfilled. This is the one. This is the one. Take it all the way back to Genesis 3 like Luke. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. He doesn't just go back to Abraham. He goes back to Adam. So he's the Savior of all peoples. And he calls all peoples to obedience. He's the promised seed. He's the one that will deliver us from our condemnation. But here's the beauty of this. All the way back in Genesis, we're told how our state of unrighteousness can be removed. The, the state of unrighteousness 
is what occurred as soon as Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the garden and were pushed out of the presence of God. Because we became unrighteous. Mankind become, became unrighteous. We became sinful. We became fallen. But we go back to Genesis and we're told how our state of unrighteousness can be removed. How can we lay a hold of lay hold of this promised seed? How can we be cleansed from our unrighteousness? How can the just consequences of our rebellion towards God be removed? How can we be delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son? Colossians, right? Colossians 1. Which is, in a nutshell, this question, how can we be made righteous in God's sight? Because without that, we cannot enter back into the presence of God reconciled. We have to become righteous. And that's the gospel. That's the question that the gospel thrusts on us. That's what the gospel declares to us. And when the Holy Spirit guides us to, to look rightly, when we're looking within ourselves, we, we find no righteousness whatsoever. Amen? There's nothing. I cannot stand in the courtroom of God and rightly and truthfully and honestly say, I've never broken your law. I've never committed sin against you. I am righteous. There's no law breaking here. No one will ever be able to do that. We're even told that when God speaks the law, every mouth will be stopped at the law of God. So how can we be made righteous in God's sight? Well, we get a glimpse of this in Genesis. All the way back in Genesis. Genesis 15, 5 and 6. This is the, the passage that Paul is quoting here in Galatians 3, 6. And in Genesis 15, 5, it says this. And he, who's he? The Lord... And the Lord brought him who, Abram, at that time, still Abram. And the Lord brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And listen to this, because this is the gospel in Genesis 15. And he believed the Lord, and he who, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. When Abraham believed in God, righteousness was imputed to him. Because he believed God. He believed that God was going to keep his promise back in Genesis 3. That that seed form of the gospel in Genesis 3, Abraham believed that God was going to keep it, and, and he believed God that God was going to keep it through him, through his seed. Now we know this story, in spite of Abraham's age and Sarah's age, past the point of conception, 
a promise that sounds impossible is possible with God. Let me tell you what sounds more impossible than a, than a couple that's 90 years old conceiving birth. Here's what's more impossible than that, okay? Even though we don't like to hear this, here's what's more impossible than that. An unrighteous person becoming righteous. What's more miraculous in this picture is not that God who spoke and things that did not exist came into existence in order to obey. What's not um, the most miraculous thing or the most impossible thing or the most unbelievable thing is not that God's going to make Sarah have a baby. The most unbelievable, impossible thing is that he's going to take Abraham, who's a sinner, and make him righteous in the sight of God. That's what's more worthy of praise here than Sarah having a baby. That Abraham is now righteous in the sight of God by faith. Abraham believed God. And here's the reality. We worship what or whom we believe. We worship, everybody's a worshiper. Say, well, you know, I know this guy, he's a a worshiper. I know this guy, he's a worshiper. He's worshiper. He's worshiping, she's worshiping, we're all worshiping something because we worship what we believe or whom we believe. Everyone believes in something ultimately. And that faith, and hear, hear me on this because this is important, that faith or that belief is what drives how you live. What or whom we believe in, what or whom we believe in, is what we obey. If you're not believing God, you need to check what you believe in. Because you're worshiping someone or something other than God. It doesn't matter if you go to church if you dress differently on Sundays, doesn't matter all the things you could be doing and instead you're in church. You can do all those things. The Pharisees did it excellently. And they hung him on a tree. What or who are you obeying in your life? Because that is what you worship. What we believe is what drives our worship. That's why it's so important that we pay attention to the lyrics that we sing. Because the lyrics are more, are more uh, important than the melody and harmony of the song. I'd rather sing a doctrinally true song to the theme song of Gilligan's Island than to sing a doctrinally impure fault song to some jazzy notes. Because it's the lyrics that drive us to worship 
the right one. And so worship, by the way, what we believe is what drives our worship, and worship is an act of obedience. We always worship what we believe or whom we believe. When when Abraham, um, and, and let me say this too, let me say this too, faith always dictates what we obey. Faith always dictates what we obey. And we're sinners, and so in the moment, we can, we, can, we can follow something else. Amen? But what are we characterized by, dear Christian? What are we characterized by? What happens when we find ourselves following, believing in, or worshiping something or someone other than God? What, what characterizes you in that situation? Repentance? Or, or convincing yourself of untruths so that your conscience is soothed. Well, I, this is what I'm doing, and so I want to believe that this is true. And so we come up with all kinds of ways that defense attorney jumps up within us, and we immediately start defending our behavior by coming up with delusional truths, if you will, or, or falsehood errors, to somehow defend the way we're behaving rather than repent. And so our faith, our belief, our belief system, what we believe in, who we believe in, always dictates what we obey or how we behave. Always. Uh, just a very simple illustration. I, I don't know if I've used this here, but I've, I've used it plenty of times. If, you're, if you're, you and I are hanging out and you go, you, we're out here in the front yard doing some work and you step out into that highway right there and I say to you, Get out of the road. There's a truck. In the next moment, what you do will prove what you believe. Because what we believe always, ex- always expresses itself in behavior. And so faith drives our faith, no matter what it is in or who it is in, it drives what we do, drives our behavior. Now, we're called to believe in the Lord, right? So when Abraham believed God, it was an expression of worship. God was who he worshipped. God was who he worshipped because God was who Abraham believed. What does faith in God do for us? Well, Paul tells us here in Galatians 3, verse 7. Know then, verse 7, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's not those who claim Abraham as their father, right? I mean, we, we see that encounter in the Gospels with Jesus and the religious leaders. It's not those who claim to be sons of Abraham that are the sons of Abraham. Paul says it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So what does faith in God do for us? 
It's the entrance into the family of God. We lay hold of Christ and the adoption in Christ by faith. Paul goes on, he says, not only in verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, but verse 8, he says in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul is quoting from the passage I read earlier in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when he says, in you shall all the nations be blessed. He's quoting Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Let me tell you something. This is a big step by Abraham, by the way. You don't walk away from your inheritance back then. I mean, you don't walk away from it now most of the time. You don't walk away from your family. That's, that's security. That's safety. You don't do that unless you believe the one commanding you to do it. And if you believe the one commanding you to do it, then you do it because you worship him. You believe him. When it doesn't make sense, maybe in the moment, you believe him. So God is saying, I will make of you, in verse 2, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is building a nation, a people, a family. So how can that happen? What opens the door to enter the family of God? What is the marker of the real people of God? And that's what Paul is teaching us here in Galatians. The entrance into the family of God is through faith, not circumcision, not ceremonial law. It's faith, not works. And Paul is saying if you believe in circumcision, you're proving that you are trusting in, keep, in your keeping of the law for entrance and acceptance with God. If you're taking on circumcision, Paul says, if you're taking on cir circumcision, here's what you're declaring. That Christ is not enough. Yes. He didn't do enough. That all the promises of God are not yes and amen in him. And that you have something within you to offer God. His life, his death, his resurrection, all that he did when we take on works, when we say, I need something more than Jesus, I need, I need circumcision, I need the ceremonial law, I need, I need these other things. When you say you need Jesus and anything, what you're saying is all that Christ did was insufficient to reconcile you to God. insufficient to adopt you into the family of God, that the person and work of Christ is not enough. 
It's not enough to bring you into and seal you forever into the family of God. And that, dear friends, is why Paul says in Galatians 2.21 that that belief is blasphemy. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And Paul means for it to be a, a, like a, a startling statement. Because he's already preached all the benefits that are found in Jesus and all the promises that are found in Jesus. What Christ had to suffer on the cross because of our sins. I want you to think about the work of Christ. What we need to stay in good standing with God is righteousness. If you lose that state of being righteous, which we have all done, You lose that through disobedience to God. But here's the, here's the beauty of the gospel. If you do not or cannot lose that state and condition of being righteous, then you cannot lose your good standing with God. And therefore will always be, hear me on this, therefore will always be allowed in the presence of God. That's why, dear friends, that we can, we can run boldly into the throne room of grace and find mercy and grace in time of need anytime we want, no matter what's going on in our life, because that entrance was not gained by our purity or our righteousness. It was gained by the work and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that work and that righteousness will not change Ever. Now, let me ask, I want to I wanna ask another question. Where do you want to put your hope for that unchanging good standing with God? Without speaking out loud, I want you to think about this past week. How'd it go? Sinless? Or sinful? Where do you want to put your hope for that unchanging good standing with God in the daily sinful struggle of your life? Or in the finished, perfect, covenant-keeping life and atoning death of Jesus Christ? Do you actually want to put your hope in self-sufficiency? Do you actually want to drink from the fountain of self-sufficiency? What you put your hope in is what you're drinking from. That's what the Bible means when it illustrates that. What you put your hope in 
is what you're drinking from. Meaning this, it is what you hope will sustain you to the end. Listen to what Jeremiah says about drinking. Jeremiah 2.13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What does Jeremiah mean? What he means is this. In Jesus flows an unending source of eternal life. And rather than drink from that pure, perfect, life-sustaining water, we, we walk two feet away and start digging in the ground, hoping that we can strike water. And when we do, we start drinking from the mud puddle instead of drinking from Jesus. And that's what we're tempted to do every day. Every day we have a choice to wake up and drink from Jesus or bend down and drink from the mud puddle. And what we drink from tells us where our hope is and what we think will sustain us until the end. And this... This verse here in Jeremiah is a crushing illustration of the vanity and the absolute lunacy of putting our hope in self-sufficiency. Jeremiah is saying, or God's saying through Jeremiah, obviously the water illustrates life. And who provides that eternal life? God. Not you, not me. And yet, in our sinful, delusional, and foolish hearts, somehow we convince ourselves to prefer digging in the ground and drinking from the mud. Instead of drinking from Jesus, the promised seed who was promised all the way back in Genesis 3 and appeared in the Gospels, And right now, seated at the right hand of God the Father. So, here's the thing. When we wake up and we start drinking from the life-giving fountain of Jesus rather than the mud puddle of self-sufficiency, what does that prove? It proves faith in God. Right? I'm going to live this day for you, Lord, because I trust you, not me. I'm going to lean upon you today, Lord, because I know that I can do nothing outside of Jesus. If I'm not abiding in him, I can't do anything. All I can do is produce mud. The life-giving water comes from you. So when we (coughs) live our day... Drinking from the fountain of living waters, it proves that we have true faith in God. God says he is the source of righteousness. God says righteousness is found in his son. Looking to Christ, drinking from the fountain of Christ, proves faith. 
proves you believe God. God says entrance into his family is through faith in his promises. And his promises are all yes and amen in Jesus. Entrance into the family of God is not through the law. You can't keep it anyway. And Paul will deep, he will get deeper into that starting in verse 10. Entrance into the true spiritual people of God, those who worship him, right? Gospel of John chapter 4, those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Entrance into that people of God, the family of God, the kingdom of his beloved son is not through the law, but true entrance into the people of God is by faith, by believing God. That's it. That is how you are reckoned to God as righteous. Now, I want to I want to close real quick with, with, with making a statement that I think is necessary in our culture. It's not belief in God or in a God or in that God exists. It's believing God. Big difference. Because we have a watered-down definition in the evangelical world today of what faith is. When the Bible says Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness, some translations say Abraham believed in the Lord. And that's, that's a good translation. I think the NASB says that. Both translations are good if you understand what they're saying. The watered-down truth that many grab at is that this kind of faith is merely a believing in the existence of God. I, yeah, I believe in God. I believe that he exists. I'm not an atheist. I'm not an evolutionist. Whatever. I believe in God. But that is not what it means. It doesn't mean that you believe that God exists. What's, when certain translations say Abraham believed in the Lord, they mean that Abraham actually took God at his word. They believed in the Lord's word. They believed in the Lord's promises. They believe the Lord cannot lie, Titus 1. What he says will come true, that he's got my good in mind when he tells me to do something. Abraham believed that God was God and that he does as he promises. No matter how impossible something may seem to the human mind, Abraham believed that God is the God to put your life on, your, on the line for. Abraham believed, hey, I'll leave everything that gives me safety, security, and an inheritance. I'll believe it because I would rather have whatever inheritance God has in mind for me than the inheritance that people can give me. When God said it was reckoned to him as righteous, Abraham believed that. I mean, how, how, 
remarkable is it that we can believe God, believe the promises, believe in his son, and, and his righteousness is imputed to our account. How amazing is that? To think that merely believing in the existence of God is the faith required is a delusional fantasy. James even says in 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. A type of faith that says, I believe God exists is a dead faith. It's not a real faith. That kind of faith even the demons have. True faith is trusting God so much that you're willing and do stake your life on his trustworthiness. That your life is centered around taking God at his word. Looking for shortcuts to somehow bypass the obedience that God calls us to because we don't believe that true joy is at the end of the path that Christ sets us on. And we somehow think we'll have greater joy by usurping God's will for us or usurping the path that God's laid out for us. Somehow we convince ourselves that the path of self-sufficiency to get there is better than the path of life-giving water. Believing God even when no one else does. Imagine what Abraham's friends and family said to him when he packed it up. Imagine what his friends and family said when he said, hey, I know we're up here in age, but God promised. Believing God that the path that he's instructed us to walk is the best for us and it will give us the most joy and the most happiness and the most satisfaction if we'll trust him and drink from him. And as I've already stated, belief always expresses itself in how we live. Faith, what we believe in, whom we believe in, always expresses itself in how we live and how we live expresses what or whom we worship. And so my prayer for us, for me, is that God would stir our hearts to believe him, to take him at his word in every circumstance so that our faith expresses itself in worshiping you. And what you'll find is that many times your unbelieving family and friends will not have an iota of understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. They, they can't fathom why you're doing what you're doing. And the reason why they can't fathom it is because they've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And we have. And we want more of that tasting. Amen? Get me away, Lord. Get me away from the mud puddle that I dig and help me to drink from the life-giving, life-sustaining, eternal life water of Jesus. Amen. 
Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray that you would take these truths and impress them deeply, deeply upon our hearts. And help us to worship you by believing you and let that faith drive us to worship you through obedience and help us to trust you that you are working all things together for our good and that your commands are not killjoys, they're happiness producers. They're joy producers in our life. They're satisfying, truly satisfying in our life. And help us to live in such a way that the world, onlookers, look at us and they have to ask us, why are you doing this? And we can tell them why. And the why is because of Jesus. Because we've tasted and seen. And oh, that they would come and stop drinking from the mud puddle and drink from the life-giving fountain of Jesus. We pray this in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.